Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.Live. RoomNow.Live is the meeting you want to go to. Today's case is a sawtooth steroid taper. How do I taper steroids? I'm sure each of you have your own little game, your own little rules. I can tell you that when you drop steroids down, if you drop too fast, the patient's not going to like it um, and it drives up steroid dose and whatnot. The single greatest problem with withdrawing steroids is um, withdrawing them too soon and confusion of steroid withdrawal syndrome and the disease for which you were taking steroids. So assuming they no longer need to be on steroids, here are a few rules. If someone has been on steroids for less than a month, you don't need to taper. You can just abruptly stop. Basically it's said that at six weeks or so of chronic steroids, you are going to suppress the HPA axis and you could have steroid withdrawal symptoms and theoretically Addisonian crisis. I've been in practice 37 years. I might have seen one Addisonian crisis from a lupus patient taking 60 for many months and stopping it abruptly, but honestly I've never seen it. So it's really, we're really talking about steroid withdrawal symptoms, which are aches and pains and nausea and vomiting and flu-like symptoms and you know, Again, that's hard to uh, uh, distinguish from a condition like polymyalgia rheumatica or a flare of lupus or a flare of myositis. So these are my rules. If you're at um, above 20 milligrams a day, um, you should taper by 10 milligrams every two weeks until you get to 20 milligrams a day. Um, and if you're at uh, 10 milligrams or above, you, uh, or above that, you can taper by 10 milligrams per week or every two weeks until you get to 10 milligrams. And then if you're above 5 or 2.5, you can taper by 2.5 between 10 and 2.5. Um, but the thing is not to go from, um, uh, when you're very high, you can go from 40 to 30 to 20. Uh, without much uh, uh, of, a, of a sawtooth change. And I'll explain that in a second. But once you start getting to 15 and below or 10 and below, you need to sawtooth your therapy. And what that means is, let's just say they were taking 10. And here, look at my, my graphic here. This is 10 on top. And then you want to go to 5. You can just go to 5 and they're going to get symptoms. But if you go 10 on Monday, 5 on Tuesday, 10 on Wednesday, 5 on Thursday, and you sawtooth, for 10 to 14 days until they notice no difference between the high day and the low day. Then on the low day, you stay on the low day for another two weeks until you're ready to make your next change. So here going from 10 to five, that's gonna take me eight days and then two weeks at five to stabilize and then another eight days. So basically in 30 days, I could get from 10 to zero using the sawtooth approach. Sometimes you need to do this when you're going from 15 to 10. You sawtooth it down to from 15 to 10. Or when you're going from 10 to 5. Sometimes you have to sawtooth it from 5 to 0. Those patients who are on 4 milligrams and can't get lower, you need to go by 1 milligrams 5 to 4 and go up and down for 2 weeks and then stay at 4 for 2 weeks and then go 5, 4 to 3, up and down for 2 weeks and then stay at 3 for 2 weeks, so on and so forth. This I find to be the way in which you can get tolerable reductions in steroids, get them down to the lowest possible dose of steroids, and avoid steroid toxicity. But you have to educate the patient on symptoms they will expect when they drop their dose. It's very likely that they're gonna get symptoms, aches and pains, but steroids withdrawal symptoms only last, really, for most people, five days or so. They seldom last more than 10. So tell them, don't make your drop on a day that you need to be really active. 
Take it on a day that you can cut back your activity, that you can take some extra Tylenol and rest, and get over the hump, and then stay at the lower dose. This seems to work well for me. Hopefully it'll work well for you. Tune in to more Cutie videos. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. This is Cutie Clinic. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Room Now Live, we got a lot of great female speakers on our program. I'll tell you about those at the end. Today's case is actually about managing DMARDs in drug therapy during surgery. So I just got a call earlier today on a patient of mine, and it really doesn't matter the disease or the biologic. Let's say the patient is on either tocilizumab for Stills disease, etanercept for RA, abatacept for RA, anakinra for JIA, or even rituximab or infliximab and yet they're going in for surgery. The question is, what is your instruction regarding um, holding therapies? Moreover, the patient's on a DMARD, methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, leflunamide, sulfazalazine. So here are the rules. They're actually quite simple. They're based on evidence and fact and lies. So the evidence is very clear. Um, patients can actually continue their DMARD therapies throughout surgery, not stop them and there's no reason to stop them. There are multiple studies showing that DMAR therapies, all the ones I just mentioned, can be continued throughout surgery without um, suspension. Now the problem is that orthopedists are not gonna accept that. They are of the uniform belief that these drugs impair wound healing when in fact they don't. Wound healing is actually a function of a wound infection, and the question what is what's going to cause wound infection? Well, steroids first, and then other factors that are not related to you, the rheumatologist. But rather than get into a fight over the evidence um, and the facts, you have to lie. So it's okay to tell the patient and the surgeon to be off the DMARD for two weeks and to restart it two weeks later. Almost no one is going to flare, unless the patient's poorly controlled, in which case you gotta rethink your strategy. Now what if the patient's on a biologic? Here there are rules, and the rules generally state that the patient should be off of the biologic for one dosing interval, meaning that they should be off of etanercept for one week or more, or um, an every two week medicine like uh, tocilizumab or adalimumab for two weeks or more, or a, uh, in the case of, of infliximab, be off of it for six weeks or more, and then have your surgery, and then restart it two weeks later. You can just go with one simple rule. And a simple rule basically is, um, states that you should be off the biologic for two weeks, have the surgery, restart it two weeks later when the, the sutures are out and there's no evidence of infection. Because what's driving this is, number one, you don't want to have surgery with peak drug levels of the biologic you are going to give. Um, secondly, you don't want to wash out the biologic totally because washing out the biologic will cause a flare of activity, which will cause inflammation, and inflammation will drive infectious risk and post-op complications. So be off for two weeks, surgery, restart two weeks later when the sutures are out. It's the same as DMARDs, have a uniform rule, it works for everybody. I think this has worked for me, you should think, tell me what your thoughts are. Uh, Room Now Live, um, some of our speakers, Michelle Petrie talking on thrombotic risk in lupus, Alexis Agdi talking about the epidemiology of psoriatic disease. Maureen McMahon talking about um, health disparities in lupus 
Melody Young talking about comorbidities and psoriatic disease, and Maya Book talking about difficult RA. Those are just a few. It's a great program, roomnow.live. From home or from Fort Worth, you choose. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live, where we give you a front row seat to what the KOLs are thinking in 2021. Today's case, RA and DVT. 47-year-old woman who has a history of DVT times two read something in the news the other day about some new risk for vascular disease with her JAK inhibitor. She wants to know, should we do something about that? She has a history of two past DVTs. She's obese. She's um, perimenopausal. um, Has no other risk factors other than rheumatoid arthritis and obesity. Uh, She has been taking a JAK inhibitor. doesn't matter which one. They all have the same risk, it seems. um, For two years now and has been doing great. She had previously taken two TNF inhibitors and an IL-6 inhibitor, and on switching to the JAK inhibitor, really found another level of disease control. So she's quite happy with how she's doing. The question is, does the news dictate a change in therapy? So as you all know, um, this has been a recent development in the last two, three years, that now all the currently marketed JAK inhibitors have a package insert boxed warning that basically says thrombosis, including deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and arterial thromboses have been described in patients taking JAK inhibitors, um, especially when they're used to treat inflammatory diseases. So that warning basically says there may be some risk with the JAK inhibitors, but there may also be risk with inflammatory diseases. What I want to impart upon you first is that the risk of DVT and PE and other thrombotic events is almost always primarily related to the underlying disease, whether that be nephrotic syndrome, cancer, um, and an inflammatory disease like rheumatoid arthritis, spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, etc. It's almost always related to the underlying disease. In the case of inflammatory diseases, we know that the risk is clearly related to disease activity. The higher the disease activity, the greater the risk. Um, so that's what you need to know first. Second, that there is an added risk when you start throwing in things like age and obesity. And even better, a prior history of venous thromboembolic events. So the question for this patient, again, is should she stop her current JAK inhibitor? And I think that's a discussion that has to be had. Again, she's not really at an age. Um, Obesity, she does have. She has RA. And she has two prior uh, DVTs. So what is her risk? You need to know some of the numbers here. Um, And we don't really know the additive risk. The population risk of a DVT is roughly about 3 per 1,000. The risk of an RA patient is closer to like five, maybe six per 1,000. And then when you take an RA patient who has enough inflammation to get a a JAK inhibitor, you add on another case or two. So it's now like six to eight per 1,000. So the added risk of a JAK inhibitor seems to be small, but it has to be on top of an existing risk for RA and for obesity and maybe other factors. So maybe this lady's risk is, let's just say it, it, is, it is additive in some way. 
uh, and that maybe her risk is closer to 10 in 1,000 or 1 in 100. That's kind of the number that you need to talk to her about and say, does she want to risk going on to another agent um, and maybe being controlled, maybe not being controlled versus um, an additional 1 in 100 risk for another DVT, which she's previously had. Now, of course, you would assume someone who had recurrent events has been worked up for thrombotic risk, other causes of that, and maybe she's even being treated for that. Um, much like the situation for hyperlipidemias with um, JAK inhibitors and IL-6 inhibitors, if they're already being treated for their hyperlipidemia, you're not going to see worsening of hyperlipidemia in those cases. So again, I'm talking, I guess I'm talking about this case because I think it, it's, it's a situation where you need to have a good, solid discussion with the patients. So if the patient's on a JAK inhibitor, has no prior VTE events, um, venous thromboembolic events, um, you can mention this, but you're probably not going to change a JAK inhibitor. Like my patient here, when she's had prior events, that's a discussion you need to have. Maybe she wants to change. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe her mother died of a pulmonary embolism and she's worried about that. Maybe she's not worried about that. And again, that's a, a, a shared decision making between you and the patient. Uh, and I think it's best to know who should be on JAK inhibitors. There are certain patients when you're starting them on JAK inhibitors who you may not want to use. Uh, a JAK inhibitor in, someone who's older, someone who's obese, someone who has a prior venous thromboembolic event, someone who has other risk factors other than their RA, which is clearly inflamed, you have plenty of other choices in RA that you could use other agents um, or not. It's up to you. It's up to the patient. A reminder, this upcoming Room Now Live, March 2021, a few of our speakers Professor Maya Book from Leeds is going to talk about difficult RA. It's going to, that's a great lecture. Michelle Petrie talking about thrombotic risk in lupus. Um, Maureen McMahon from UCLA talking about ethnic disparities in lupus. Melody Young, a nurse practitioner in Dallas, talking about the skin exam in psoriatic patients. And Alexis Ogdi from Penn talking about the epidemiology of psoriatic disease. These and many more, Room Now Live. This is Cutie Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live, where you'll come for the 12 hours of CME, but you'll stay with a lively discussion. We have probably close to 30% of the our CME time is devoted to Q&A discussion, polling, etc., panel discussions. It'll be really interesting. Today, we're going to talk about travel guidelines with COVID. I wrote about this in a blog uh, a few weeks ago, you might want to look and see what the latest CDC recommendations are. But I wanted to talk about this because I just got back from uh, RWCS in Maui, a meeting run by Artie Kavanaugh. It was a great meeting. It was a great relief to go to a meeting. Um, you know, I travel a lot. To get back on a plane to me was sort of like joy. Um, a meeting that usually has about 250 to 300 rheumatologists at it for four days. Um, I think there was um, a little under 60 um, rheumatologists in the room, uh, and it was comfortable, it was safe, it was good. Why? Well, uh, it was comfortable because we returned to that thing we like doing so much, which is traveling to meetings. Second, um, everyone that had to fly to um, Hawaii had to adhere to the the, the government regulations, which required you to have a negative nasal PCR NAAT test 
within 72 hours of arriving at your destination. Uh, moreover, all of the people, uh, all of the physicians attending this were vaccinated. Um, so there's sort of like a double protection built into that. Now, again, vaccinated with a negative uh, nasal PCR, you're pretty close to being um, protected, but you're not 100%. There still is a risk. So everyone actually practiced social distancing. Um, everybody had their own six foot or eight foot table, it seemed. Um, everyone wore masks. Um, they took off masks when they were when they were eating and dining. They some took off the masks during the meeting because they really had a wide berth of space uh, during the meeting. Um, I think everyone felt incredibly safe at this meeting. I think it's important to start thinking along these lines and start instructing your patients. I, I spent time today talking to two patients about what. Um, they should be doing as far as getting out. You know, they've they've not left the home. They are older. They um, don't go to restaurants. They're afraid to shop. They're you know, and I think that you need to get certain things out there that things are changing. As long as you're practicing the rules, and you're you're basically controlling your environment, meaning avoiding high risk situations, you're probably going to be safe. What's a high risk situation? Do you want to go to the grocery store? On Saturday morning when the parking lot is full? Probably not. Um, do you want to go you know, to a concert or a basketball game with 15,000 other people? Definitely not. But can you go walking outside, outdoors, where there's you're walking by yourself and you're social distancing and you're not um, stopping to talk to people? You don't need to wear a mask and you can certainly do those things. I've told my patients that I think restaurants are safe. I think that planes are safe. I think when you're sitting at a restaurant, it's like sitting in your own seat with some space on the plane. You're sitting with someone or across from someone who you know, and you have a wide berth and whatnot, and you take off your mask, you eat your meals just like at home. The, the risk at restaurants and airplanes is really going in and out, congregating, paying for the check, um, going to the food court, letting your guard down in those situations where there's high exposure risk. The planes, there's very few episodes of COVID that's been documented on a plane. Um, it has to do with the spacing that's there. Not many people are flying. And again, the, um, the, the, the uh, filtering of the air um, is at a higher level than it ever was before. I think that, again, uh, these situations are fairly safe. I guess I bring up this case because I think there's a change that um, uh, is going to evolve here. Certainly, we should be recommending all of our peers, all of our um, our coworkers, all the healthcare workers to get the vaccine and do the same for our patients. You know, the more we get to 300 million people in, in, uh, vaccinated in the United States, the closer we're going to be to herd immunity. I think it's also wise to, uh, after you're vaccinated, to still practice the same measures that got us to where we are today, and that is masking, double masking in certain situations, um, uh, obviously um, social distancing, uh, avoiding congregate settings, and washing your hands frequently. Uh, again, this is the way out of the hole, and these practices can remain in place while we liberalize some of the things that we can now do. Come to Room Now Live. You can come live. We're going to have a small crowd there, probably the same as RWCS, about 50, 60 people. There'll be a lot of space. There'll be social distancing and masking. Or you could watch us virtually and sign in that way as well. We'll see you there.
This is Cutie Clinic, and I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Smart, engaging rheumatologists will be checking in on March 2021 for RoomNow.Live. You can register now. Today, we're going to talk about hemoptysis and lupus. Really, we're going to talk about diffuse alveolar hemorrhage and lupus and a high risk of mortality. I wrote about this a few days ago in Room Now. There was a nice meta-analysis done on this very rare, very deadly condition, very deadly complication of lupus. Diffuse alveolar hemorrhage can be quite confusing. Uh, these patients are lupus patients. They usually look sick. They, their numbers are sick. Their x-rays look like, 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 <laughs> like there's a problem going on. And the question is, how are you going to distinguish someone who's hemorrhaging into their, into their alveolar spaces from those who have an infection, from those who have an acute lupus pneumonitis, which is not infectious but will respond to steroids? The difference being the infection needs, you know, the appropriate antibiotic or antifungal or anti-tuberculous drug. The lupus pneumonitis needs high-dose steroids. And those with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage need the kitchen sink, including pulse steroids, to survive. Diffuse alveolar hemorrhage is associated with a 30 to 80% mortality rate. So in this particular analysis of eight studies and about 250 patients uh, in those eight studies, they found a mean uh, mortality rate of almost 38%, ranging from, I think, 29 to 62% in that particular uh, analysis. They looked for, for what were the independent risk factors for death as an outcome, and they found, number one, older age was a significant risk factor. Second, a longer duration of lupus was a risk factor. Um, current infection. Now, I don't know if that's real or the confusion of the situation, because, again, these people, whenever they're admitted with this problem, um, they, it's always infection versus that. They get treated for infection. They later get steroids. In the end, you may or may not know, especially if they died. So con concurrent infection or suspicion of infection seems to be a risk factor. And then in this analysis, either receiving plasmapheresis or um, being on mechanical ventilation were risk factors for um, mortality. Now, the latter two are probably signs of severe disease, more so than those particular interventions, meaning those are the things you give to patients who are in the ICU when you're pulling out all the stops. I guess the, the point on this case is early recognition and knowing who may be at risk. You know, uh, again, the elderly, those with more severe disease. In their analysis, they did not show that lupus nephritis or patients with thrombocytopenia or neuropsychiatric lupus or cytoxin-treated patients were at higher risk. Um, they did not show, but then again, I, I don't think it was consistently reported, whether disease activity was a risk factor. You might take into, a, into account that, you know, longer lupus, a plasmapheresis, mechanical ventilation, they were clearly people were in trouble. Maybe that equates to disease severity because that has been suggested in the past. These people present with acute shortness of breath, dyspnea enough to get, make them hypoxic. And usually when you look at the chest x-ray, you see patchy infiltrates or whiteout in both lungs bilaterally that's backed up by CT uh, uh, chest films that basically show um, ground glass opacities uh, in both lungs meant uh, to, well, I think a representative of 
the um, alve alve blood in the alveoli and fluid within the lung. Um, the interesting thing about these patients is, is that when they are hypoxic and acutely short of breath, they will also have a, a, a quick drop, an abrupt drop in their hemoglobin that will go along with these opacities and worsening of their PO2, so as to suggest that maybe all the blood going into the lungs is going out of the vascular space. I don't know if, it, if that's true, um, but this is a phenomenon that has been seen. Also, it's also been suggested that if you were able to do diff diffusion lung capacities, an increase or higher than expected in DLCO um, would also be indicative of blood uh, and hemoglobin within the alveoli um, um, that would alter that particular result. Again, high mortality here, early recognition, early intervention is probably the way to save a life. More QD clinics to come. Hi, this is QD Clinic and I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow Live, March 2021, a cool, keen, connected CME conference. Be there. At the end, I'll tell you about our special faculty. Today's case is about when to do genetic testing. This just came up with a recent email I received from a colleague asking me to comment on a case. The case was a 29-year-old male who'd been having fevers for a few months. The fevers were up to 102. They would last, he said, up to a week, would go away and then come back a few weeks later. So there was this periodicity to it, although it was sort of irregular as to how it was behaving, but it seemed like he needed high-dose steroids to control the fevers. The question was, what did he have? The workup was pretty unrevealing, uh, and my first comment to him was, he's not going to have Stills disease. I don't care if he meets Yamaguchi criteria. He doesn't meet Cush criteria. It doesn't matter what criteria. He can't have Stills disease or systemic JIA or AOSD because he doesn't have a daily fever. That's quotidian, meaning greater than 102 occurring every day with no breaks. That's what happens in systemic JIA and Stills. It goes on for months and months and months. Also giving you daily fevers would be something like Schnitzler syndrome, which happens in adults. So the question is, what does he have by having this intermittent fever? My answer is get a genetic test, gets an auto-inflammatory panel, and I'll tell you how to do that at the end. When should you consider doing an auto-inflammatory gene panel? Um, you can order a single gene like the MEFV gene for familial Mediterranean fever. It'll take you six months of bickering with your insurance company and figuring out who's going to do it, how much you're going to pay for it, thousands of dollars likely. There are easier ways, but the real question is who should get a gene panel? These are my rules. Number one, the patient really needs to have features of an auto-inflammatory disease. Having some criteria, not all, but certainly not none, or certainly not one, that would prompt such testing. Having some criteria means they should have fevers that are otherwise unexplained. Rashes, those can be, especially if they're urticarial, pustular, or um, um, what's the other thing I wrote down here? Urticarial, pustular, or um, intermittent, meaning they come and go. Uh, other features would be serositis, inflammatory labs, CNS involvement, hepatosplenomegaly, lymphadenopathy. You don't need to have all of them, but you need to have several of those to make one of the many auto-inflammatory syndromes a consideration. Second, you should consider it when the fever, like this case, 
is not daily. When it's daily, then it could be Stills disease, and there is no gene test. Um, but when it's not daily, when it's lasting two or three days, or a week, or two weeks, and then goes away, and then comes back, that's the panel that you want to order in such patients. When there's a periodicity, meaning it recurs every month, every three months, that also suggests a genetically determined disorder. When it happens in the very young, since you know infancy, or basically as a child, and these have continued on since, or if it's happening in a child, you would consider an, uh, an auto-inflammatory pa uh, panel. A family history would be a good reason to do this. And lastly, failure to respond to either colchicine or steroids or an IL-1 inhibitor. These would be reasons enough to, in my mind, to actually to exclude an auto-inflammatory condition when they certainly don't respond to usual medicines that work in auto-inflammatory disease. So what do I recommend? I recommend going with a, uh, a, an outfit called Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. You can order an auto-inflammatory panel for 250 bucks. They will bill the patient. Um, the patient will pay for it, but it's going to get done quickly. Uh, and it's 72 genes, uh, at least half of which have been associated with known auto-inflammatory disorders. Uh, you have to be registered as the physician, the ordering physician, and put in the patient information and order the test, and then they will contact the patient, send them the kit to draw the blood, etc. And then two or three weeks later, boom, you've got your answer, or you don't. The interesting thing about auto-inflammatory diseases is that even the best of clinics, like the NIH auto-inflammatory clinic run by Rafaela Goldback-Mansky and others, about 60% of their patients that they follow, they seem to have, clearly have, auto-inflammatory type disease, yet don't have a genetic diagnosis. Again, 60% will not have yet had a genetic diagnosis. But as you know, if you follow the work of uh, Rafaela or Dan Kastner and others, they're always coming up with a new syndrome. This year it was the somatic mutation associated with the Vexus syndrome, V-E-X-A-S, interesting syndrome. They sort of look like um, relapsing polychondritis patients with fevers. Anyway, um, I think you should uh, consider a genetic panel like this through Invitae.com. There are others that you can you can find that will do testing. Actually, I tweeted this recently. I, I tweeted it from a slide from Susan Chenoy from the University of Seattle giving a great talk at RWCS. And I have a slide on uh, four or five companies that do genetic panel testing but Invitae is clearly the most cost-efficient of them, in my opinion. So that's it for this case in QD Clinic. Again, our fabulous faculty, um, truly stellar, uh, just a few. Uh, Ian McInnes is going to be our keynote speaker and is also going to give a small TED Talk. His keynote is called Twas the Best of Times and the Worst of Times. It's sort of a reflection on what's happened in the last year and who better to do that than Dr. McInnes. Also from the EU, Frank Buderet, who's going to talk about prednisone. Frank's from Germany, has been working on steroids a long time, has a lot of interesting things to say about steroids, and he's going to do it all in 15 minutes. Uh, others would include um, COVID talks by Philip Robinson on the Global Rheumatology Alliance. He's one of the principal uh, leaders in that effort. And Beth Jonas from the ACR um, uh, Program Directors uh, uh, Group, who's going to talk about changes in education during COVID. And lastly, we're going to have a session on RA killers with Jeff Sparks talking about ILD in RA, and I'll be talking about pneumonia in RA. That's, our, that's, uh, that's Room Now Live, March 2021. See you there.